So uh, if you have the uh, sheet from last week, which is called The Great Value of Reconciliation, uh, that's what we're going to focus in on. I'll just briefly summarize what we talked about last week, and we'll get right in to the components of reconciliation, certain steps that need to be taken in order for a relationship to be fully restored. And so we'll talk about that. Let's pray together and we'll get going. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to have my brothers and sisters in Christ with me today and to be able to interact concerning this topic, which everyone needs this information from Scripture because unfortunately, in a fallen world with a proclivity towards sin and rebellion, you do have relationships that are harmed and fractured and sometimes even destroyed. And so help us, O Lord, to learn from the Word of God what we can do to make sure that the relationships that we have are always precious and are always in good order to the best of our ability. So grant to me wisdom, clarity of thought and speech as I try to make this truth known to my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. When we started last week, let me recall to your mind that the thing that I wanted you to understand last week is that reconciliation is very important to God. And the greatest evidence of that is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 through 21. Uh, we, we looked at that last week where God initiated reconciliation with us. Now, that's a very important statement because God never needed to be reconciled to us. We needed to be reconciled to him, but we were in the condition of spiritual death and could not do anything about that. But God graciously and mercifully initiated reconciliation. Now, remember, we told you a good brief definition of reconciliation is the re re restoration of a relationship that has been out of order, out of sync. Something has damaged it. And so what you're trying to do is bring peace. Really, that's the product of reconciliation. In Romans 5.1, because of the reconciliation that God had done for us, uh, Paul wrote to the Romans, we have peace with God. Those of us who are justified uh, by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. What does that mean? the absence of an adversarial relationship. It's reconciliation. The product of reconciliation is peace. And so we started to examine what is the first component. I wish I could come up with a better name. Uh, the first name that I have there that's on page two is confrontation. Uh, I, I wish I can come up with one that uh, maybe captured the essence of a person-to-person -person encounter. In other words, reconciliation cannot happen if the offended person and the offending party never get together. Uh, the offended person and the offending party don't have uh, some sort of interaction. Very, it's in, impossible, really, for reconciliation to happen without two people somehow talking through this event, talking through the situations. One person being willing to extend forgiveness and the other one being willing to seek forgiveness. And then the two of them are better able to bring about restoration. And without that, again, I'm just going to say it's impossible. You have to have that first 
um, that first component, and that is a confrontation or person-to-person -person relationship. Let me demonstrate that from the Word of God. Take a look at Matthew chapter 5. We were looking at this last week from the Sermon on the Mound, um, where this is sort of uh, brought to bear here. 521, it says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit a murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, the reason Scripture says that is in the economy of God's Word, if you had hatred in your heart for a person, it's equal to the committing of the act of murder. So God is, when he gives his laws, he's more concerned internally about your heart rather than a conformity of external behavior. I hated the person to death, but I didn't kill him. You know, some people in church even say, you know, I love him in Christ, but naturally I hate him. And that's not, you know, the attitude that we're supposed to have. And so he talks about that. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever ha um, says to his brother, you good for nothing, reka, that's the Aramaic word for you empty-headed person, you shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering, and here's that person-to-person -person encounter. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present the offering. Two things. The first thing is that um, there's no reconciliation without this encounter without going to your brother. That's what I was trying to say. It's person to person. You have to go to your brother. And it's interesting because what he's saying here is before you're religious, before you're offering your sacrifice and doing your religious thing, the first thing that you must do is to be reconciled. You must make sure that that relationship that was out of order has now been brought properly into order. And so that's very important. And it means person to person. And again, I'm going to tell you, there's no way of getting around that first component. Um, you know, you, you had a fallout with a person. It's with that person that you have to have the encounter of uh, discussion and determination as to whether or not this is going to be, it's going to work, you see. So that's important. Um, so I want to move on. Uh, one thing I want to say, if you look on page three, still under the component, page three, still under the component of uh, confrontation, if you will. <clears throat> See, is it right? Did I get that right? Um, if you look at, let's see, one, two, three, fourth paragraph, or there's a verse a sentence and a paragraph, the internal attitude is what the law prohibits, the attitude of hatred. And therefore, when someone lusts after a woman, for example, such an internally possessed passion is the same kind of moral offense to the Lord as committing the act of adultery. And I, I just I wanted to highlight that again. It's your attitude toward people that matters to God. It's your attitude toward people that matters to God. So when he gives commands in his word, for example, 
not to commit murder. He's also talking about the mindset that gives birth to murder, that that itself becomes the sin. Or when he says you should not commit immorality, he also condemns the mindset that leads to that, which is lusting after a person, you see. So I just wanted to highlight that. Um, if you take a look at the red, in red, 1 John 3, 14 through 15, this is a sort of a, <laughs> a strict warning, but it's there nonetheless. It says, we know that we put, if we pass from death to life because we love our brethren, anyone who does not love remains in death. Page two. I'm sorry, did I tell you to turn page three? Back to page two again. See, you guys, you know, I should tell you what a lot of women say to men when that happens. If you knew, if you love me, you know what I mean. <laughs> so that's what I mean. I just wanted you to see that. Uh, yeah, it, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So again, that is a John really issuing a very strong declaration that a mindset of, of hatred toward a brother or a sister is equivalent to murder itself. All right, now. I'll give you the new page, all right? All right, let's move on. Let's go over to page three. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> I, I am sure this time. <laughs> um, there's another uh, important step that the Bible talks about where there's the person-to-person -person encounter. And I'm going to show you that from Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. Again, what are we highlighting? We're saying that reconciliation cannot be achieved uh, without ever having an encounter with a person who has offended you or you've offended and you need to talk to and get this situation worked out. It's just impossible you know, to be estranged from each other and then somehow that uh, you know, happens that reconciliation occurs. It just, it's never gonna happen in that way. In Matthew chapter 18, in verse 15, uh, Jesus says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Now, uh, in some translations, matter of fact, some of the earlier manuscripts and the King James Version has this verse in this way, If your brother sins against you. So it's a... It's a discussion about someone who sins against you. And the first thing you do is you go to them privately. Again, it's highlighting this person-to-person -person encounter. And that, that sometimes is the hardest hill to climb. That first step, getting on that phone or seeing that person and saying, brother, sister, we need to talk. I need to make an appointment. And if you do that to a person, please do it right away. Don't say, we need to talk next Monday, because you're going to put them in agony for a week. You know, hey, brother, sister, can we get together? Uh, I just need to talk about an item. And by the way, when you go privately, it may be that you might find out that it was not a sin at all. It may have been a miscommunication, a misunderstanding. 
uh, I had a brother come to me uh, when I was at Moraine Valley and he said, can we talk? And so we went into an office and he said, listen, his name was Randy, Randy McLaren. Loved that guy. He was a young guy. He said, um, Did, is, is everything be okay between you and I? And I said, of course, Randy. Why do you say that? He said, well, several times at church, you know, I've said hi to you and you didn't respond. Now, at that time, you need to understand at Moraine Valley, there was like 2,300 people now roaming the halls, you know, going to church. And I actually never heard him. <laughs> I never did. And I would never do that. I, I, it's beyond my nature if a person says hi to me to ignore him. So we talked it out. And, you know, instantly the relationship was restored. So that's, you know, that's not a major, major issue, but it could have become something because Randy was a part of the guys that were part of my youth uh, leadership team and such, and I wouldn't have wanted to have some sort of an estrangement with that guy. So again, I'm just pointing that out to you that there has to be this meeting. And then, and then it says, and the, the Bible I think this is evidence of the importance of reconciliation and loving confrontation because the next thing it says, it says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So there is another step. Uh, this isn't often done in churches, but it needs to be where you need help. You need witnesses. You need somebody. I've been a witness to some of these things. And you're there really to determine what happened. What are the facts of what happened? And was there a factual act of sin? Did someone go against the word of God? Now, sometimes it's been um, pretty easy to determine. Uh, I can think of some times where I was involved in a, I was a witness about a, an issue of adultery and it was very clear to me that that sin actually did occur. And, and so that's very important that we have witnesses. You know, the biblical standard for the cooperation of an accusation is always consistently two or more witnesses. Mike Riccardi's message always comes to mind that he, we had on tape here at a church a number of years ago. We saw a video, How to Kill Your Neighbor. And that whole message was just about that idea that you can, you can slaughter some, you can wreck everything about a person if you hurl an accusation against them and it's not been proven, it's not been verified. It's pure agony. Uh, you know, if you're accused of something and in your heart of hearts, for example, you know that that's not true. And that's why the brotherhood, the family of God, the witnesses need to be engaged in that to see, is that a viable, is that a true accusation? Because if it's not, then it should never be made. I'll actually show you the passages that talk about that. Yes, sir, David. What if there isn't another witness? What if it is something? Yeah, that's that's a person? that's a challenging one. What if there isn't another witness? There are times where um, at, at the end of this study, I'm going to talk about uh, the whole idea of uh, what if a person doesn't want to reconcile with you. And I'll sort of cover that if you can hang on to that, but that's an outstanding question and there is some scriptural answers to that. So thank you for that, but I'll, I'm afraid to go to the end because if I go to the end, I'm gonna never finish the beginning.
step one, the person says, I'm wrong. I confess. I made oh, yeah. If, if at the very first step, uh, a, a person says, and I, I've been in that situation, mm -hmm. I, I, you're right. What I did was wrong, and I repent of that, and I'm so sorry I offended you. It's over. In other words, you don't go to any more steps. Yeah. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah. The yeah. other is that because the application is if somebody offends you, but for example, if somebody who is a member of the church does something, like we had a case before, somebody committed adultery and elder in our church. Yeah, yeah. And it was done outside the church, not within the church. Uh-huh. Uh, again, I, and maybe you will cover that uh, at some point because sin has a public dimension. It affects the whole it does. church and the sanctity of the yeah. church. Mm -hmm. So that might be another different discussion. But oh, that, that may be in the, in the realm of, you uh, know, I don't know that you're leaning in that direction, but that may be in the realm of restitution. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between reconciliation and restitution. Uh, if if um, an elder, uh, uh, this is a personal opinion that I have, if I was ever unfaithful to my wife, and uh, even if I repented, I think because of the position I occupy, I would be basically unable to be restored. And I'll tell you why, to the position. I can be forgiven, but not restored. Because can you imagine if I'm preaching on Ephesians 5, 25, talking about loving your wives, and what's gonna be going through your mind if you know that I was unfaithful? So I've lost teachability. I've lost something so significant you have to have enough respect from the people you're teaching that they're willing to listen to you. And so restoration sometimes, and we'll get to that, we'll talk about that, but sometimes restoration, even if the, if the person repents, um, it may take time. There can be restoration in certain other areas, and sometimes there can't be, but we'll cover that. That's coming up. You guys are anticipating all the stuff that I, I wrote about. So that means wise minds think alike. I'm not including myself in the wise mind part, of the, just so you know that. But then the next step it says, and then I want to show you these verses on the two or three witnesses. It says, if he, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, that is the witnesses. The witnesses go, they see that an actual sin has is is been done. They also implore that person, please repent, please repent. Whenever I read that, I think of a time when uh, one of our former elders um, actually got on his knees and pleaded with the man to repent. Very moving time. He saw, his heart was so captured by this, he pleaded with the guy, please repent. And the guy wouldn't do it. You know, but you, you get the sense that the, he, he was a witness. He, did, he was a witness to this. But when it was obvious that there was an actual sin, he immediately turned to exhorting this brother, pleading with this brother, begging this brother to turn away from sin, knowing that destruction was ahead of him, you see. And so that's where the witness now becomes the exhorter or the witnesses become those who exhort people. Uh, and I, I'll never forget that. It's always etched in my, it actually happened in this room, actually. So it's etched in my mind about that, that moment when that occurred. Then it says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So the church now is informed. This is not a gossip session. 
isn't that you don't bring this issue before the church uh, for, refer, uh, for, for the purpose of uh, destroying the person's character or any of that stuff. You're asking now the church, the body of Christ, we have a fallen brother or sister. Please join with us in the restoration. Join with us. Call them. Write them a letter if you can. But implore them to repent of their sin. And, and our church has done this in the past. You know, so you're, you're trying to do that. And then if that doesn't work, it goes on and it says at the end of that, uh, verse 17, if he doesn't listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. For a Jewish mindset, that means excommunication. He's excommunicated. He's separated from the church. Now, keep this in mind. Church discipline is not ever done to kick people out of the church. Church discipline is done to get fallen brothers and sisters back into the will of God. Uh, I love my church. I love you folks. I love to be here. The worst thing that could ever happen to me is I would be so stubborn in a sin that you have to separate me from you. It would kill me. And it would be a dynamic for me to repent. The sin would not be worth hanging on to. If this is the cost, now if I'm naturally saved, then this becomes a purification of the church. You understand that? If this person really wasn't a believer, then the, the, the excommunication becomes a purification of the church. So at the, at the bottom of that page three, I gave you the step-by-step -step thing you notice there. Step one, private confrontation. Uh, step two, semi-private. Step three, public explanation to the church. And then the fourth step, public excommunication. But I want to show you a couple of passages. I want you to look in chapter 19 of Deuteronomy. I don't want to pass this up into this whole matter of... Uh, the restoration of relationships. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 19, and we're going to begin with verse 15. In verse 14, it says, You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, um, which the ancestors have set, in your inheritance, which you will inherit the land of the Lord your God gives to you to possess. In other words, each tribe was given a certain territory, and there were boundary marks, property owned by others. And you, you should not move the boundaries on the property so that you take the property. It says basically justice and fairness. You don't do that. That property wasn't given to you. It'd be like if you decided to build a big wide fence that way and halfway into your brother's backyard or your neighbor's backyard. You can't do that. And the same thing here. But then he says, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now, why is God giving us this? Why do you think he, he says this? Why is this so important? That you can't you can't execute judgment on a person who has simply been accused by a person. What do you think the purpose of that is? Yeah. To evaluate what? The truthfulness of. Yeah. 
validate. Yeah, to, to validate whether a sin actually has occurred here. It, it protects people from personal vendettas that other people might have against them. Uh, we have seen how that hurts people in our country in the realm of politics. A lot of times uh, uh, politicians use an accusation that has not been validated, but it does harm to their opponent. Even though, you know, and they'll always say, oh yeah, he's, he's innocent until proven guilty, but I just know he did such and such. Uh, this is for justice sake, that people are not able to go and hurl an accusation at a person and then have a judgment based on the accusation of one person. That's just not fair, it's not right. If you look at verse 16, just to show you how important this is to God, if a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the man who have the dispute will stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who will be in office in those days, and the judge shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do uh, to his brother. So in other words, if there is a, a false witness, then he is to be discovered through a judicial process even. And if he or she is a false witness, whatever penalty they were hoping to get for that person will now be on them. And it's interesting to me also that in the Old Testament, um, if a man killed another person, he could not be put to death on circumstantial evidence in the Old Testament. It had to be two or three witnesses. So consistently in the Bible, you find two or three witnesses. We just read of one in Matthew chapter 18, right? You accuse a person, you go to them, you go to them privately, I think you've sinned against me. And he says, no, I haven't, especially if your accusation was really malicious. You're just trying to get even with this person. And then you call the witnesses. Well, I had a situation like that. It was a business dealing between two Christian brothers and the guy who asked me to be a witness, I had to witness that he was wrong. He, the accusation was not true after our investigation. It was not true. Now, of course, he was not pleased and he's never asked me to be a witness since then. <laughs> but I mean, the point is, that's what your job is. Is there, is there true sin here, you know, before we start issuing judgment? It's just plain common sense, right? You know, you don't want to have a person dealt with uh, in, in a harsh way, you know, suffering judgment that they don't deserve. And so that's why that's there. All right, let me show you another passage in, um, look at the John 8, 17. This has to do with Christ and his witness. John chapter 8 and verse 17 Um, they were accusing, you have to kind of read back a little bit on this one just so you might get the context. Look at verse 12, for example. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What were they basing that on? The consistent 
biblical standard for corroborating a fact. He says, you are, you're saying you're the light, of, you're the only one. Now, there's all kinds of witnesses to the identity of Christ that they're ignoring. John the Baptist witnessed about the identity of Christ. The miracles that Jesus did witnessed about, you know, the same thing. And if that's not enough, the Father from heaven said what? This is my beloved. So it's plenty of, so they're saying your testimony about yourself, it can't be true because you're just giving your own personal witness. So in 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Your judgment, uh, you judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. So God the Father is my witness. So in other words, he's saying, yeah, it's true. I am the light of the world. But you see that being exercised in this context. Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5. I just want to make sure you get this. <clears throat> 5.19. It says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So this is like an elder in the church, and it says that. Now, why is that important that God has a standard for the elder in the church? He's, he's in a lead position. He's a leader in a particular community of Christ. Why is this important? Why is this significant? Right? If it's not true, it would ruin his reputation. Right. If it's not true, it diminishes or damages his reputation. Uh, anything else? <coughs> Hands all over the place, evangelically speaking. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just to kind of piggyback on what was just said, mm -hmm. um, you know, our own reputation is more precious than jewels and rubies. That's what the scripture but says, yeah. The reputation of Christ's church mm -hmm. is even far more yeah. important than yeah. any individual's yeah. personal reputation. Mm -hmm. And if that slander was, you know, not true, then, you know, we have enough people that are disqualifying themselves, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, um, that... You know, we don't need to have the name of Christ tarnished by something that's not even true. Right. And you're exactly right, because um, those accusations, you know, I, I remember one time uh, reading about a pastor who he had a, a woman in the church just accuse him of all kinds of false things. And um, after he confronted her, you know, she said uh, she repented of that and he and he said she said to him what can I do I'm so sorry what can I do for the damage I've done and he took a pillow 
a feathered pillow loaded with feathers, and he cut it open, and he shook it loose, loose out the window. He said, go and gather all those feathers up. And she said, what? He said, well, I'm trying to tell you is what you did is pretty impossible now. It spread. You know, that's how serious of a matter it can be. It's spread out like those, those feathers caught in the wind. Which what are we going to do now? Pardon me? Which is gossip. Yeah, which is gossip. Uh, you know, when, but she, that's what she was confessing. She was go- confessing uh, gossip. And so it is. It's, cr- it's terribly damaging to the body of Christ. People start to hear about that. But also elders are in positions of authority, and a lot of times they have to make decisions, all frequently, a lot of times. And sometimes people don't like them. I always exhort you, they don't like the decision, that um, the one thing I know about the elders after being a part of the elders is our elders are always, all the individual elders are always open for you to come to them. Have the courage to do that. Don't, don't be the, the person who's in the lobby. Why are they doing that? Go and ask the person who give you the answer. It's an amazing thing to me that we go to people and grumble about another person, and the other person can't interact or tell you what, why they were thinking, what they were thinking, especially at the elder level. Go to the elder or elders. You can actually can actually, you know this, you can actually ask for a time to come and see all of them. And they'll put you in. They'll put you in the agenda. They won't give you a whole lot of time, but they'll put you in the agenda <laughs> because they're so busy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Because I think Katrina, you said that. I mean, that is just the, that's that's the little tiny element that starts. Yeah. And it's really just builds from there. It does. And probably not a person in this room has not been a victim yeah. in some degree. Yeah. Some major as we're talking. Yeah. So it's really something that I personally dealt with in my profession because mm-hmm. it's so easy mm-hmm. to talk and just yeah. to make. And if someone else starts talking, you just kind of go along with it. And this is where I think we can grow spiritually to an element that is such a blessing to yourself and to yeah. so many other people. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I remember as a senior pastor and even as an elder that I really disliked. So here I'm confessing this. See, I don't care now because I'm the pastor emeritus. What are you going to do, fire me? Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the things I really disliked is when people came to me and they said, some people are saying. And I'd always try to find a piece of paper. Okay, let's list them. Well, it's me and my wife. Okay, now we're telling the truth. <laughs> but you're making it sound like 300 people in the church are in an uprise, you know, and, and, and that's not true. You're just trying to give some stuff behind your, your complaint. And so I'd always want to know who are these people, these some people, these nameless people. Well, I don't know if I should name them. Well, I'm, said, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't go anywhere with your complaint. It's dead in the water. I mean, I've, if you want something done, be courageous enough to talk to the people who can, can hear you and uh, be able to fix something. So it's very important that you maintain, especially in the body of Christ, what, what Jeremiah said should be such a strong value that the reputation of Christ is at stake here at New Community Church. You don't always think of that. But the reputation of Christ 
is at stake here at New Community Church, and we have to uphold it. And the way we do that is when we have friction with each other to follow the scripture. One of the things I said there is that you cannot, you cannot approach these problems. When, the, 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 the natural thing is to do this. There's a problem, there's a conflict, and the natural thing is to naturally figure out what I should do. And the Bible is very, very uh, revealing about what you should do. Don't follow your own inclination when it comes to fractures and relationships because you're liable to do something wrong. I've had people make suggestions to me, you know, why don't we do this? Uh, you know, why don't we do that? Why don't we have, why don't we have an all-church meeting about it? You know, like, oh, yeah, that's, what we, that's what we need to do. <laughs> but people will do that to you, you know. And I, I kept, kept on saying always, you know, what does the scriptures say? What does the scripture say? Uh, at one time, there was a person trying to force us uh, to exercise church discipline without any attempt of reconciliation on the part of the parties. Well, you can't. What did Jesus said? You know, say you have to go and first try to be reconciled, and you have to. Matter of fact, you have to give evidence that an actual sin occurred. You know, well, the person said that this happened to him and that happened. Yeah. The Bible says one man's story seems right until another comes and examines him. I don't know how many times I've had that in marriage counseling, you know. Oh, yes, my husband is a Godzilla. He destroys everything when he comes in the house and he yells and screams and he will not want to get any counseling from you. So I go out to him and I say, hey, you want to have counsel? You want to meet with me about the marriage? Sure. What time? <laughs> I got a yes from Godzilla. <laughs> you know, so in other words, every, and then when I get them together, there's a lot of the piece of the puzzle that I didn't know until that moment. So getting together really helps objectively. You say, you were going to say, Dave. We have a saying in the military, the first liar doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> the first liar doesn't stand a chance. Yeah, that's true. And so it's very important um, that we handle these things and we handle them biblically. I've got an illustration on page three from an actual conversation I had with a pastor at a shepherd's, not shepherd's, at Moody Bible Institute, Moody Pastors Conference. And he informed me it's about the one, two, third paragraph down on page three. Uh, he said, in a conversation with a fellow pastor at pastor's conference, he informed me that a leadership in the church was aware of an immoral relationship or immoral relationship. Yeah, one that uh, one of their deacons was engaged in. And when I asked what, um, what the leadership was doing about the situation, his response was they were bringing this matter before the Lord in prayer in order to bring him to conviction about this sinful sinfulness of this matter so that he might repent and depart from his sinful relationship. Do you see anything wrong with that approach? So they're basically what he's saying is we have decided uh, that we would deal with this matter by making it a matter of our prayer, the leadership, that the man would feel the conviction of the sin and that he would change his mind. Do you see anything wrong with that? It's not biblical, it's, and I just couldn't believe it, you know, because I knew of the man and I knew of his church, and, and I said, well, what about Matthew chapter 18? And another guy across the, 
the table said, if I practice chapter Matthew 18, the church would fire me. So what? <laughs> you probably don't want to be in a church like that that doesn't want to adhere to the scriptures, you know. So you, you got to do what the Bible tells us to do when it comes to relational conflict. You have to do what the Bible tells you to do. God created you. God created you to have a relationship with you. And so he knows what's needed to keep a relationship in good order. And he knows what to do when it gets out of order. So the best person to consult on conflict and destructive relationships is, is, the, is God and his word. So I just wanted to highlight that point. Well, let's move on. Let's get to page four. I used the Catholic term. I guess it was from my Catholic study left over, but it's there anyway. Contrition. But don't worry about it. If you look it up in the dictionary, it just means a person who feels a godly sorrow about their sin. Uh, the word that is commonly used is repentance. So in other words, in, you, you can, you've come to this person, uh, they have sinned against you, it's been proven, they've said, yes, indeed, I'm so sorry for what I've done and I repent of that. What does that mean? What does that look like? Because there is an actual godly sorrow that produces repentance, but there's also a worldly sorrow. So I want to help you to, to see the distinction in that, because if, if there's a worldly sorrow, the conflict continues. It has not been resolved. Even though the words were spoken, the heart of the person has not been changed yet. And so there will be ongoing conflict unless you reach this matter of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Um, in the second paragraph, the Greek verb for repentance is mataneo. It means to undergo a change of one's mind, a positive change of heart and mind or attitude that is expressed in altered and improved behavior. The change of the mind is not a mere switching of minor opinions, but such a drastic U-turn in your thinking that it results in the recognition of sinful behavior and a redirecting of your entire life. So uh, immediately, please understand that uh, repentance is not just words that are spoken. Repentance should be words coming from a heart that has been changed and has produced new life action. So it's very important that you understand that repentance is not just words. I repent, I repent. It's actions in uh, the true heart of the repentance. The next paragraph, Lagos defines repentance as having a change of self, heart, and mind that abandons former dispositions and results in a new self, new behavior, and a sincere regret regarding your former sinful behavior. That's genuine repentance. You know it when you see it. Genuine repentance, you'll know it when you see it. Genuine repentance will inevitably result in a change of conduct. The change of your behavior is not in self-repentance, but it's the fruit of repentance uh, that will certainly bear. There must be a change of heart before you get a lasting behavior pattern that corresponds to the revelation of God's will for us. The Bible warns in blue letters there, the Bible warns about the need to distinguish between worldly repentance and godly repentance. So I want you to look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 8, Paul says this, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Let me explain what he's talking about. As far as we know, there are four different letters that were, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Two of them made it in the Bible. You know them as first and second Corinthians. The first letter had to do with the issue of immorality in the church. And you get more of a, a hint of that in first Corinthians chapter five about the individual who was uh, sleeping with his stepmother and so forth. And the Bible had this sort of enlightened tolerance of what was going on. And Paul said, you can't do that. You're letting sin poison the body of Christ. You're letting it in there. You've got to deal with it because he used the idea of leaven. He said it's going to spread through the whole loaf, just like leaven does. If you don't deal with sin, it's going to spread in the body of Christ. So deal with it. The second, uh, uh, the, or the second letter that we don't have in the Bible, the sorrowful letter, is because of um, the uh, developing animosity in the Corinthian church toward the Apostle Paul. Uh, by, was driven and fed by false teachers. And so Paul wrote a rather harsh, a very tough letter. He said it, it was one that made them very, very deeply sorrowful. And he said, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't want to hurt anybody by that letter, uh, you know, but I had to write what I had to write. And so even though you were made sorrowful for a period of time, it's a good thing because the end result was godly sorrow was produced in your heart. You get that? That's important. You know the background there. And then he says in verse 9, Now I rejoice that you were not made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss of anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. A godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. And let me help you understand the two. I've got them defined on the page there. Uh, worldly sorrow. Let's talk about that. Worldly repentance. Worldly repentance is being more upset about being exposed as a sinner and the inconvenience that, it may, that you may experience more than the fact that one's sin is an offense against God and others. So the first thing is, um, I've always, I've, rec I've seen it, um, worldly repentance. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that, you know, that, you know, I one time even had a guy say to him, I'm, I, I'm deeply sorrowful for uh, what this adulterous relationship that I've been having has done to my boys. I mean, they are really sorrow, you know, hurt by what I've done. And I said, will you repent? He said, no. He said, you know, this woman is everything I've ever wanted in my life. My wife has been this and that. And he started complaining about his wife. So I, I'm not going to buy his repentance, right? That, that's, that's, not, that's not a sorrow produced in his heart by God. He's, he's, he's mad about the fellow. Well, he's not mad, but he was inconvenienced by the fact that his, uh, his boys uh, were not, you know, didn't respect him like they did. I happened to be there when his boys came 
they were in college and they were like in Ivy League colleges. And this guy had a big job in one of our defense companies here, but he was having an affair with his secretary. And his boys came in, unbeknown to me, they came to the office when I was meeting with the two of them and the boys asked if they could come in. And the boys made a speech basically saying, you know, Dad, I respected you so profoundly. You were the idol of my life. I wanted to be like you, but I just need to know I will never respect you again. We are done, Dad. And they left. And the man wouldn't repent. So whatever he told me, I'm, I'm very sorry about all this stuff. No. What you're sorry about is you were caught. You understand that? That's a typical worldly expression of worldly sorrows when you're caught. You, you got caught. You can't, there's nothing you could do. But you won't change. Do you understand? That's the big difference. You're not going to change. You're not going to do anything to make that better. It's a very heart-wrenching thing to observe. Reading on next sentence under worldly repentance. Worldly repentance wants to negotiate the consequences of their sinful behavior rather than fully accept the penalty of their sinful behavior. They don't like... Uh, 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 one time when years ago when our elders were involved in a situation where there was a pretty severe split in the marriage, um, and, and the man said that he, he truly repented, he repented, and we gave him like seven or eight things he had to do. And guess what he did? He did every one of them. I always know worldly repentance when the guy says, or the girl says, I'm not going to do that. I'll do that and that, but not that. <laughs> so they want to negotiate how the reconciliation's going to come about. I will not do this. I'll do that, but I won't do that. You know, and... I think a test of whether or not your repentance has really happened is like in the gentleman that the elders gave him a list. I think it was eight things on that list. And he said, yes, sir, guys, I'll, I'll do them all. And he did them. He did everything we asked him because his heart was transformed. He recognized that he sinned and the sin was severe. So worldly repentance is, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this and that, but I... What do you think? I'm going to lower myself to do, you know, no. <laughs> you do whatever you need to do because you're the offender. You're the one who sinned. You're the one who hurt. You're the one who destroyed and harmed the relationship. So you do whatever you need to do. Reading on, those who are worldly in their repentance are argumentative and defensive rather than being broken and humbled by their sins. They're often more concerned with their reputation once this sin is made public than their relationship with the Lord and others that have been damaged by stepping beyond the will of the Lord. You know, that's, that's very, very important that, you, you know, you understand that, you know, I, I, I can't be worried about what people think about me because I'm the one who's done the sin. I mean, what, what, what am I going to do? I can't, you know, I've hurt my own reputation. And so they, they want to negotiate. Now, what's godly repentance? Let's get to the bright side. It's pretty dark on this side. Godly repentance is produced by godly sorrow over your sin and a strong desire to make things right in the sight of the Lord. When I think of godly repentance, I think of the tax collector in the temple in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you remember the tax collector 
was so overtaken by his sin that he couldn't even look up. But all he could say to God is, please be merciful to me. No excuses, no attempts to explain, you know, but this happened or that happened and then I had to do, not, nothing like that, just beating his breast, the Bible, in another translation, says he was, that's a, a gesture of, uh, of um, uh, sorrow or repentance, is beating his breast, saying, please be merciful. Now, the Pharisee on the other side was counting all of his spiritual assets for why God should always be kind and gracious to him. And it's interesting to me what Jesus said about that story. He said, which one of those men went home justified? The man that went home justified was the the repenting tax collector. To the Jewish mind, that had to be, what? A vile, hated tax collector found the mercy of God. Why, a Pharisee did not? You see, but the tax collector did exactly what God, you know, God says that he values. It's in the last chapter. Let's find it, Isaiah 66. Yeah. That's very interesting. I mean, it yeah. tells you where his prayer was. Yeah, his prayer was directed mostly for, to praise himself. In Psalm 66, in verse, or Isaiah 66, verse 2, this is the Lord speaking, For my hand made all things. Well, obviously, that's our Lord. Thus are all these things, all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But this is the one I look to or look at, the one I will look. Um, in the Hebrew, the word can also be, this is the one that I greatly esteem. So this is God talking about the kind of person that he has a, uh, an esteeming perspective of. And then he tells you, to him who is humble and contrite. Contrite is contrition. That's what I'm talking about. A godly sorrow over sin. A person who is humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. So in other words, this is the kind of guy or man or woman that God values. A person who is humble. Humble is nothing more than having a biblical understanding of yourself. I like the way Romans 12 and verse 3 puts it. It says, whatever you do, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but to think with sound judgment about yourself. So a humble person is somebody who has an accurate view of self. He doesn't, an arrogant person is self-deceived. Uh, an arrogant person has determined that they are more superior to other people on the basis of uh, position, power, prestige, possessions. And because of these things, they look at other people as if they are lower. Their degrees, their zip code, you know, all those kind of things. And they, they are delusional. They're they're arrogant. They're prideful. Arrogant, uh, arrogance is pride with lips. If, if you've ever been around an arrogant person, is they just can't stop talking about themselves. You know, it's, 
enough about you, let's talk about me, that kind of an attitude. And uh, so you don't want that. God doesn't want it. He hates pride. It's the first sin committed. So he said, you know what? The guy I greatly esteem, the woman I greatly esteem, is somebody who has an accurate view of self. You see, yeah. Yeah. The evidence of that. Let us say I offended somebody, and I'm really a very good actor, and I could act out all one to six and have the resources to make restitution. Now, who will tell that I am truly contrite, other than God? Like yeah. within the church, the person I have offended. Yeah. Oh, yes, he has acted out. I mean, to put yeah. the best word. Acted out all one to six, and he has given the restitution necessary because he has the resources. Yeah. So, who declares me contrite other than God? Yeah. Time and truth go hand in hand. And in time, if somebody's acted out the stuff but really didn't mean it, it'll be show. Besides this, God said this, be sure your sins will find you out. What he meant by that is, uh, I'm an exposer of sinful people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In other words... um, Um, I always tell people it's better that you expose yourself regarding sin than for God to expose you. (laughs) Uh, you, You'll get, what, this might happen to me in that? Yeah, that might happen. You might have this, whatever the consequences of your sin may occur. But it's better that you admit, you initiate, you say, I have sinned. I've, I've not done what God has asked me to do. Because in time, if you try to keep hanging on, well, David would shout at you all, everything was going fine until Nathan showed up. <laughs> I thought I covered all my bases. You know, I had adultery with Bathsheba. I tried to get that guy to sleep, her own husband. He wouldn't do it. He's a loyal soldier. He said, if my other soldiers are out in the field, I'm going to be out there with them. I got him drunk. I tried to, so that he would think that that baby she has in her womb now is his own. And he didn't fall for it. So I had him killed. Put him in the front lines of battle. So now I can marry Bathsheba. And, well, that all worked. And then God said, Nathan, Tell him a little story about a little sheep and all that, you know. He did. Remember what he... And, and David was so mad that a man stole a, a sheep that had become like a pet to the family. He stole it and he slaughtered it. <clears throat> you know, and so he says, you know, you find that man and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really do him in as the king, you know. And he turns around and says, you are that man. Hasn't God blessed you with everything? Hasn't God given you the kingdom? Why is it that you need to take another man's wife? So the exposure was pretty harsh. (laughs) So I always encourage people, you know, deal with your sin uh, as quickly as you can. uh, Because you'll find forgiveness. That's a great thing about it. No matter what the sin is, uh, the Bible says that if we confess our sins, that's our part, that's our part, then God takes over. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So forgiveness is a sure thing. And if you you mean, if your repentance is real, now you're dealing with an omniscient God, so he'll know. 
that your repentance, whether it's real or not, you see. And always when you confess a sin, we haven't got to, which is the next thing we're going to get to probably down here, but <clears throat> yes, sir. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Someone comes to convict you or present your sin to you, then you are confronted with a choice. Yeah. That you aren't maybe prepared to make. Yeah. Even considered. And so your reaction is really you're on you're on a chopping block. Yeah. Yeah, you have to make a choice. If you real quick, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, things can really get pretty bleak at that point. You know, at that point. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <clears throat> um, confession, by the way, we're going to learn. It comes from the Greek word homo legato. Um, uh, Basically, what it means is to say the same thing about sin that God says. When you're confessing, you're just saying, yes, God, that is a sin and I've committed it, you see. And so I, I need that forgiveness. And the interesting thing is, and when we get to this, you'll see it, that God always promises that if you confess your sins, you really do confess them, you find forgiveness. So it's better to get to the forgiveness side of things. <laughs> and so don't try to Hard, hide things so that you, um, you get into trouble. There are seven signs here in the bottom of page four um, on how can you identify uh, that person who has experienced genuine repentance. Now these are, these come more from counselors than they do specifically from the word of God. There's some implication in scripture from that. So I want to tell you that it's, you know, it's just like the five love languages, um, uh, the author of that book was one of my professors at Moody for my uh, biblical counseling class. What's his name again? It's uh, Chapman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Gary. Gary Chapman. Thank you. Were you in my class? Nope. <laughs> Were you living in 1978? Nope. <laughs> Doesn't that make you mad? <laughs> one time in a staff meeting, they were all talking about the dates when they were born, and I'm thinking as they're talking, I was already married 25 years. And, <laughs> but, yeah, Gary, thank you for that. Um, but one other thing that he would admit to you, because I remember him talking to us about that in the class, is uh, that there are things that are directly from the Word of God, come directly from the Scripture. And of course, you need to always pay attention to that. And then he said there are things that are helpful. They're not directly found in the Scripture, but helpful. And then there are things that are unbiblical. Obviously, avoid that entirely. So he looked at his book, you know, because you, you're not going to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, you know, and find Paul says, you know, you know the greatest is, is love. And then the next verse is the best thing you could do is find out which love language best suits your mate. <laughs> he, he didn't say that, you know. <laughs> but that, that's, that's helpful, that there are various ways to get the love message across to your mate. It's a very helpful book. The, the same thing in this here, these seven things here are helpful. They're helpful. You know, if you want to gauge what repentance looks like, 
the repentant person, number one, accepts full responsibility for his or her action instead of, since you think I've done something wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> or if you've done, if I have done anything to offend you, I'm sorry. The if and sense and no. <laughs> the person says, I have sinned against you, period. It's not, well, okay, I'll acquiesce to your thinking even though I did not do anything wrong. That's not repentance, you see. Number two, it welcomes accountability from others. Remember I told you the illustration I gave you, the one man that we worked with at one time. That, that's why he met with us. He wanted the accountability so that he could make sure his life didn't get out of line. Wow, that's genuine repentance. He was saying basically this, I don't want to do that sin again. Please, please help me to establish some barriers so I don't fall into that again, you see. Number three, does not continue in the hurtful behavior or anything associated with it. It stops at that point, you see. Number four, does not have a de defensive attitude about being in the wrong. Defensiveness always worries me. <laughs> it always, when we come to this, if you've just said earlier, I repent, but then when we're trying to work out how we can best help you to overcome the sin, you're all defensive about it. You don't want this to be done. You don't want that to be done. That always, it just makes me unsettled in my heart. I'm wondering, where are you, brother or sister? Where are you? Have you really repented of this? You know, that you, you have to put up barriers about what you're willing to do in order to fix this problem, you know? Uh, number five, does not dismiss or downplay the hurtful behavior. That's really, that's really bad. You are truly not repentant if you look at the hurt person and you sort of dismiss their hurt. That's not good. Number six, does not resent, uh, does not resent doubts about their certainty or their need to demonstrate sincerity especially in cases involving repeated offenses. I one time had a man who we were working with, this is years ago, and uh, it, it was an adulterous relationship. He did truly, I believe, truly repented. But in time, he called me one time and he said, he said, Pastor, let me just ask you a question. He said, if I'm 10 minutes longer at Schnooks, she's calling me and bugging me. I'm getting so tired of her always checking up on me. I said, brother, that's the consequence of what you did. You accept that. Only in time will you develop trust again. You can't expect her to fully trust you now. This is a consequence of what you did. Own it. Your wife worries when you're gone longer than what she thinks you should be gone. Why? Because that's what you did and you fell into sin. So don't get all huffy about how many times she calls you. I almost felt like saying, you know, from now on, I'm gonna call you. <laughs> so now we got your wife and me. <laughs> because he, that's, there's, God forgives you of your sins, but he does not deliver you from the consequence of your sins. See, keep that in mind. You're not delivered from the consequence. If you're gonna sin, the consequences may be long-term and, you know, they, they may be often experienced by you, but you can't blame anyone else for the consequence. You sinned. 
you see? And so I worry about that kind of thing. And then seven, makes restitution where necessary. Um, uh, remember I told you about the one situation where it was a business issue. A guy invited me to be a witness. The guy who invited me to be a witness, I came up against him because he did sin in that business dealing. Uh, eventually he came around and the good thing is he made restitution business-wise. You know, he paid the money that he should have paid, you see. And so that, that's, a, that's a sign of genuine heart change. All right, I only have like five minutes, I think, but I want to, let, let's just talk about confession in the five minutes. It's the next page five, confession, just so we make sure we understand that true repentance results in openly acknowledging to God that he is right and you are wrong when it comes to the matter of sin. And in 1 John, uh, let me show you that. Look in 1 John. <clears throat> now, there was a group called the Gnostics, just to give you a bit of a background. And that's who he's, John's really writing about. The Gnostic people had this dualistic view of life. They thought that all that is spiritual is good and all that is matter is evil. And they thought that they can marry that, wed that with Christianity. And of course, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was fighting that. And one of the things, I mean, because that, because of that dualistic philosophy, they denied the incarnation because they could not imagine that a true God would become flesh. Flesh is matter and therefore it's evil. They denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus because that's exactly what happened, but they could not imagine in their theology and in their philosophy that Jesus would take upon himself evil material and resurrect. And so they were really causing trouble. And the other thing that they would say, said is your moral behavior doesn't, it's, it's not of any consequence. The issue is enlightenment of the mind. Your body has cravings. Because you have cravings, gratify your cravings. That was the way you think. So, so John is writing against that, and, he's, and they claim to be born of God. So John keeps on saying in 1 John, here are the ones who are born of God. Let me tell you what they're like. And one of the things that he says about a, a born one of God is they confess their sins. So they acknowledge their moral failures to God. And he says something in verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, and that's what the Gnostics said. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. What he's talking about is the principle of sin. If you say, you say I don't have that, I don't have a bent towards sin. I don't have a, a nature that directs me toward rebellion and sin. You do. And if you disagree with that, you're, 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 you're deviating from what is true, what God says about mankind. If you look at verse 10, I'm going to get to verse 9 in a minute. If we say that we have not sinned, so verse 80 is talking about the principle of sin. Now he's talking about the practice of sin. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Because God has declared in un, no uncertain terms that everybody on planet Earth is a sinner. That sin is a universal problem. Everyone is a sinner. But you're saying, no, it's not a problem for me. I'm the exception. You see? So you got people denying the principle of sin, and you got people denying the practice of sin. And what should they do? Verse 10. 
verse 10, verse 9, I'm sorry. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins, if we come to grips with the reality that what we did was wrong and we openly acknowledge that to God. And again, what are you doing? You're simply saying that what God has revealed about moral behavior is right and you've lived contrary to it. So you are confessing your sin. And if you do, you've got a God in character who does not change. If he makes a promise, you can count on the promise he made. If you confess your sins, he forgives you. I one time had a lady said to me, Pastor, I've confessed the sin over and over and over again, and I really mean it, but I just don't feel forgiven. So the first thing I asked her is, well, what does it feel like to feel forgiven? Well, you know, you just kind of feel like everything is okay, and I just don't feel I'm forgiven about that sin. I said, well, I hate to tell you this, but you actually committed another sin. What? Yeah, it's called the sin of unbelief. He says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Notice he doesn't describe anything about feelings. You may have feelings. It's not that the feelings are bad or good. It's just that I'm not going to gauge whether or not I'm forgiven on the basis of my feelings. I don't know about you, but my feelings can be all over the place. My, I would hate to have a GPS that operated on my feelings. Because I'm, I'm not kidding you. When I travel sometimes, I swear I'm going north. But that stupid GPS says, no, you're going west. And I'm... I feel like I'm going north. <laughs> but it keeps saying, no, you're going west. And at that moment, I got to make a choice. Am I going to go with my feelings or follow the GPS? And so I make the choice to go with the facts. The facts here is if you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins. So if you are the offending party, keep that in mind. When you go to your brother and you repent or your sister and you repent, make sure you go to God and confess before you even go to your brother so you can get that issue dealt with. Well, my time is over.